this is the Expanding Economics Podcast. the Expanding Economics Podcast, a show where we discuss pluralist or alternative approaches to economic thought. This episode is all about neoclassical economics, how it came to be the dominant paradigm in economic thinking, and what the implications of that are on global capitalist society. I've interviewed Julian Karygesian, who is a special advisor for Finance Canada in Ottawa and teaches history of economic doctrines at McGill. Just to refresh your memory, or in case you missed the last episode, Neoclassical economics is a tradition of economic thought that developed in the late 1800s out of the classical economists like Adam Smith and David Ricardo from the century prior, hence the neo in neoclassical. Neoclassical economics has three main pillars that are the conceptual underlying assumptions. The first is individualism, so neoclassical theory focuses on the behavior of individual agents, be it consumers or individual production firms, and the theory tries to build an understanding of the economy as a whole, from the decisions of individuals. The second pillar is optimization, so it's assumed that all individuals seek to make the best use of any given resource or situation. And finally, the third pillar is equilibrium, so the decisions of individual agents must balance and individuals will adjust their behavior until no better outcome is possible for both parties and the final decision is stable. The interview with Julian was recorded back at the end of February before our whole world sort of changed. So just as a preface, when we refer to the recession, we are talking about the economic recession of 2008 and not the recession or depression that we currently face. This episode will be the last one that focuses on purely theoretical and historical concepts, at least for a while. In the coming episodes, we'll shift gears to analyze current economic events in relation to the pandemic while incorporating themes from the first two episodes. So without further ado, let's start the show. I'm uh, Julian Karagessian. I study here at McGill. I went to work for the Ministry of Finance Canada, where I've worked most of my career. I've been out in uh, embassies twice, working for Ministry of Finance. I've worked at Export Development Corporation. And three years ago, I approached McGill to see if I could work here as a visiting lecturer, guest lecturer. And uh, I applied for a position, and, um, and here I am. Um, What interests me in economics generally is trying to continually adapt the theory so that we can explain reality. And I think a lot of economics has tried to fit reality into theory. Would you be able to give a bit of an overview of what neoclassical economics is? Okay. I can try. It's many things to many people. Mm -hmm. A strict definition of neoclassical economics is just what came after the classicals. So the classicals being Marx, uh, sorry not Marx, (laughs) Freudian slip, Smith, Ricardo, and others. And then when Marx came, Marx 
splinters the discipline, this early discipline that starts in the throes of capitalism in England. Uh, Marx comes along and shatters the discipline, like I said, in, in its infancy into many pieces. And so after Marx, there's neoclassical, and neoclassical is a return to economic inquiry that's not looking really at the social relations behind economic factors, which was what Marx looked at. So neoclassical can be many things to many people, but to me, one of the things it is, is after Marx, the discipline splits, and one direction it goes is a very apolitical direction that focuses on prices, demands, supply, value, and the means of production, capital, labor, land, without really talking about the relations of production. And then economics settles into a very neoclassical, neoliberal in the political sense, not the political party sense, neoliberal um, mindset centered around a single representative agent who maximizes his or her pleasure from consumption subject to some budget constraint. That for me is neoclassical. In a university introductory economics course, a student will likely only encounter neoclassical economics. Uh, why do you think the other schools of thought are not represented in the intro courses or even in higher level courses? I, I think why they're not represented, I, I think a, a big part of it is actually inertia. Like when, when like think of it, if we, looking at the history of scientific thought is always a good guide uh, for economics. We're just a hundred years behind physics, mainstream economics. But when Einstein came along with special theory of relativity, and then with general theory of relativity, and then moved his inquiry into quantum mechanics, quantum physics, uh, most of the scientific community at the beginning, mainstream science, a lot of his colleagues or a lot of people around the world thought, thought he'd lost it, thought he'd lost his marbles at an early age. There was so much inertia invested in a Newtonian vision of the world where everything works like a clock. It's a clockwork world. And in, in, in this, if I can stay with the Newtonian analogy, Newtonian physics thought that they'd figured everything out. And if you only had enough information, you could figure out everything that's happened since the Big Bang and everything that would happen henceforth. And neoclassical economics is very similar. It's a very clockwork vision of the world where there's this single agent or a single firm and, the only, and they're in equilibrium, which is uh, obviously a fictitious notion given the world we live in, um, but we have to start somewhere in economics. But this, this mechanistic view of the world where everything's in equilibrium and someone's maximizing his or her pleasure from consumption subject to a budget constraint. And the only way you get out of equilibrium is you shock this system with an external shock. And this is, um, I don't know if this ever had explanatory power, but it certainly doesn't in today's world. And so the question why it continues, part of it is inertia. Wherever I've worked, no one's told me how to think. But in big, big institutions, uh, there certainly is a kind of a prevailing attitude. There's a, there's a tendency toward groupthink. But I think, I think a, a big part of it's inertia. And ideology, obviously. Uh, would you be able to provide an overview of 
any alternative economic schools of thought to neoclassical or any of your favorites or ones that you're interested in? Well, there's, I mean, there's the thing right now, because of the global financial crisis and because it shook mainstream to its foundations, but with the crisis it became evident to many people that they could no longer explain macroeconomic phenomena. Could, there's no, there was no predictive power. So there were always alternative schools of thought and they were, again, to use thought in the same sense, they were thought to be fringe, unrigorous, not scientific-based, not fact-based, but some of the schools of thought that have existed are, of course, neo-Keynesian, which was pushed aside starting in the late 60s, 70s. Uh, so basically, Keynesian thought applied to the modern time, neo-Marxian thought. And so we saw a return after the financial crisis to thinking that analyzed what the system is itself, what is capitalism? Because the question was almost not allowed to be asked before the crisis. The word was very rarely used in, in the Anglo-American world. It was almost never used in economics journals. And so what we saw is a return to systems thinking after the crisis. So that's one of the schools of thought, kind of a new economic thinking that's not afraid to use systems of thought from so-called Marxism, from, from Keynesianism and from others. And some of the new schools of thought are difficult to label, but they're very practical. They're looking at systemic collapse, uh, the resilience of economies, interconnectedness not only within economies and between economies, but interconnectedness between the disciplines. And those are the, the new schools I don't think are left or right. I think um, the world is starting to outgrow these 19th and 20th century systems of thought, left wing, right wing, uh, labor, conservative, and we're moving into, as, as modern economic capitalist civilization has crashed into the ecological frontier in a major way. The economics that's starting to come out of that they're, they're green shoots, and um, they need to, I think one thing is they either need to lock fingers, or they're just, they just, the ideas need to spread, and I think they will spread. Most developments in economic thought and social theory throughout the early modern era are now compartmentalized as political economy, I guess like Marx is classified as a political economist, um, and then later on the field split into political science and economics. Do you think neoclassical theory played a role in this divide? And if so, what was it? Well, I think the, the history of this is old. Um, so with the advent, so we have to go back 170 odd years. So Marx comes along and puts a ceiling on economic thinking. It's hard to get around it, but people do get around it. And one of the ways is neoclassical economics and neoclassical economics and the marginalist revolution and all those graphs we see in economics, if you know, price is this, quantity is that, if there's a shift in the demand curve, all that stuff, that whole line of inquiry was apolitical for two reasons. One, it was naturally apolitical. Some of the people that went into that, like Corneau and Dupuis, the French school, the British school, these were um, almost exclusively men at this time, so these were men who were very interested in the technical. Um, how are prices determined? What's a market? How can we quantify uh, Smith's invisible hand? And part of it was political. It was conscious. 
because after the 1848 revolutions that were put down with force all across Europe, did the act of a philosopher or an economist actively looking into the system of income distribution, how society works, who gets what, who gets the rewards, who does the work, that whole line of inquiry became seditious. And if it became seditious, it was stamped out by different authorities. You said that the initial economists following Marx were striving for an apolitical economic framework that was highly technical, but it also sounds quite neoliberal, or I guess, I guess in some ways it is not completely apolitical. Um, no, no, definitely. <laughs> I mean, there was there two things happened. Some people were scared because of the suppression of the 1848 Paris communes and the revolutions that, that shook Europe to its foundations. So some thinkers were just scared to continue with the line of inquiry that Marx initiated. And it was initiated even earlier, actually, by a female economist named Maria Edgeworth, who was writing about the imbalance between landlords and the population uh, during Adam Smith's and David Ricardo's time. But Marx develops a full system of thought. After Marx, after the suppression of the revolutions, after he dies, things start to change. The powers that be commit to improving social conditions. But the whole system of thought called Marxian goes underground at that time, after, uh, after 1848, and particularly after Marx and Engels die. It becomes, a sedi it becomes partly seditious to continue Marx's line of inquiry all the way up to 1919, post-World War I. Young Rosa Luxemburg from Zamost, Poland, who takes some of the technical aspects of Marx's writing, some of the mathematical ones, and she writes two things, reformer revolution and the accumulation of capital. The accumulation of capital is a scholastic, more of a technical inquiry into how the economy works. And she's trying to, she does two things. She's, uh, she updates Marx's thinking for, for her time and then writes a pamphlet, reformer revolution. And she goes to Germany and with Karl Liebknecht and others in the, in the collapse of post-World War I Germany, the disaster that it was, she starts the Spartacist Party, and 100,000 people are members within, within, within a very short time. And you, you can see that this line of inquiry into Marx, like there's two things about Marxian economics. There's the analysis, and then there's the action. You, you analyze the system, and if it's unbalanced, you change the system. So that whole line of inquiry is seditious, she takes both tacks, she analyzes it, and then she mobilizes for action. And she is, she is uh, executed by, by thugs who basically became brown and black shirts. And she's dumped in the Landwehr Canal with, with Karl Liebknecht. So you could see that um, even like the nerd-like you know, economist inquiry into income distribution uh, it can be very dangerous for your health, uh, depending on what point of history and where you are. All that to say that the line of economics goes in t different directions after Marx. Neoclassical is above ground, and then there's welfare economics. There's all kinds of economics after Marx. So it sounds like, or I guess I've interpreted this as, following Marx, there was a bit of a fear response or lashback, and a bunch of technocrats emerged 
I guess, to not really counter Marx, but I guess di diverge away from that line of thinking because they were afraid of it. Yeah. Um, and then that, it, would you say that's kind of the basis of neoclassical dominance in a way? Well, it's, it would be nice if it were that neat. And, and it, but in, in, yes, in some ways that's true, but it's more complicated. A couple things mm -hmm. happen. Economics starts to become more technical. Mm -hmm. Uh, after Marx, and Marx was quite technical in, in some aspects of his writing, um, but so engineers are attracted to economics, and I'm not saying engineers are apolitical, but they they weren't approaching economics from the same point of view that you know Marx and Engels and others are approaching economics, or even Smith. They're approaching it from well, how are prices determined? So politically, that's not very interesting. Politically, it's very unthreatening. Obviously, part of it is definitely a big part is the suppression of this kind of thinking on the European continent, and part of it is that you know engineering type minds are attracted to the field and pursue these line of inquiries. But maybe that's made possible by the fact that this very powerful system of thinking of uh, an economic interpretation of history that Marx uh, created, and the the, you know, the dialectical approach to economics, you know that whole line of inquiry was suppressed officially both by you know both by the state and the continent of Europe and within universities so what you were describing earlier is that there was a movement of economists that wanted that, that were striving I guess for object objectivity and a political economic framework does do people still believe that that is a possibility because if you start talking about prices and rent theory pricing in, can inherently become I guess a class issue. I'm not sure. Like, is there a way to get around that? Well, I, I guess I also am a believer in the fact that there's no such thing as apolitical, so I might be biased. No, there. I believe I'm. I, I believe the same. There's nothing that's apolitical. Not yeah. even good art. But there, well, there's two things about economics. I, I think it's. I think it's a really. Uh, it's a good line of inquiry that you started, because it gets us into like, what is economics? Um, what, what, what has it always been? It's always been a way, an attempt to explain the world, the material world. And in explaining the material world, and I don't just mean material things, by the material world I mean how human beings are able to reproduce their material conditions and improve them. And so economics really starts with capitalism. There is no economics before capitalism. There is no discipline called that. It starts with industrial capitalism in England. And so there's two things about economics. There's the side of economics that one could say is objective and say that it has to do with explaining you know, the, the cycles in the economies, um, up, down, recession, expansion, inflation, all these things, prices are rising, unemployment. And so that's, that's, a, that's an important kind of outward part of economics that I think everyone's familiar with. It dominates the news on television, uh, uh, at least the big news. It dominates uh, news and newspapers and the big newspapers, it's all, right? The impact of coronavirus on growth. And then there's the other part of economics, which is hugely political. And it's the part of economics that explains how the economy works. What is the structure of, the, of economic society? Who produces, who gains, who loses, and who has the power 
to maintain the structure or to even tilt the structure further towards the benefit of special interests? And how do special interests operate anyway in a textbook neoclassical economy where they say there's perfect competition, where everybody's the same? Um, so we have to be very careful. So there's the up-down economics. Some person on TV is saying, you know, well, growth is seasonally adjusted at a monthly rate is, you know, point, you know, down point, well, one-tenth of one percent, and that's the who cares economics for me. It's, it has its place, but then there's the fundamental part of economics that seeks to explain longer cycles than a month or a quarter or even a year and look at what is happening to economic society generally. Is it going in a positive direction in terms of social justice? Is this rising tide of economic growth lifting people's lives uh, prosperity, right? Rising boat, lifting all tide, um, overused analogy. Um, so that's the kind of economics that I'm interested in. And I think that you know, perhaps we should all be. I think economics is a critical subject. And the, the fact that it's not taught in high school, or at least not taught properly from my experience, I think is a huge injustice to us all. Because how can we, in a capitalist society where everything is economics, or almost everything seems like economics, Right? We live in almost this cult of growth. How, if we live in economic society, which is capitalist, it has a name, and now it's global capitalist, how can we live in a society and not know what it is? How could someone have lived in medieval society and not known about the feudal contract that existed between the so-called peasantry and the feudal lord? Everybody knew about it. And, and the structure was clear and it was visible, and the power brokers, the church, and the aristocracy were clear. And the punishment for challenging that structure was clear as well. And so people figured out how society worked fairly quickly, I think, over generations. But we don't know today, I would say, so many of us are not aware of what kind of system we live in, like the water that we're swimming in and the air we're breathing. And I would say one of the remedies is to have it taught properly in, in high school. Um, we're going to shift gears a little bit. Um, before sure. you were talking about how the history of economics is intrinsically tied to the history of science or scientific thinking, would you be able to talk a bit about the role of hyper-rationalism across various disciplines and how it affected economics compared to physics, philosophy, and psychology? I mean, I think, um, I think the whole idea that you need to start from the premise that uh, everything you do must come from observations of data. You need observations to have a starting point. I, don't, I, th I think that's the, you know, the, basic of, the basis of scientific inquiry. But the problem with you know, fully applying that to economics, which by that time was already heavily mathematized and he you know, heavily depoliticized, unjustifiably so, the problem with you know, then layering on that school of thought to permeate economic thinking it was to push economics further and further away from uh, a study of what, what is effectively human behavior in the aggregate and the cycles that it generates. Push it away from a discipline that, I mean, for me, economics should be about how do we create an, an economic society that works for people, all people, um, and we can figure out a way. 
and you know the uh, the influence of the technical very important um, the positivist school though takes economics further away from a discipline that that says how can we improve people's lives and into a discipline of how can we explain you know the 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 variations in economic growth over certain periods. Why? How can we explain, you know, the slope of a demand curve? Um, you know, these are things that we should be interested in only, and we should have nothing to say about the distribution of income in society, and we should have nothing to say about social justice. It's it's almost in retrospect, like it's almost funny that that happened if it weren't so tragic. <laughs> yeah, neoclassical economics defines the economy as the sphere of production and consumption activities. Um, this type of thinking includes other forms of unpaid labor, like reproductive labor, which makes up a pretty good portion of economic production. Um, reproductive labor? Yes, like, I guess if you look at the history of women in society, uh -huh. in the medieval period, uh, under the feudal system, wages operated completely differently, and yeah. there was the creation of the marketplace, and women were excluded from the ability to get paid or yeah. work in a paying job and were and became dependent on their husbands for any income because they were unable to participate in the economy even though they labored every single day they looked after children oh, and yeah. like took care of the housework but that was not valued in society enough for them to be paid so i guess what is the role of do you think there's a role of patriarchal dominance in the framing of the economy as production and consumption activities. Yeah, definitely. I think um, very patriarchal. I mean, if we take just, if I step back, if I stray, please put me back on a track or sure. just <laughs> throw something at me. If we look at the broad sweep of history, mm -hmm. so we go back pre-capitalist, pre-feudal, pre-Roman Empire, mm -hmm. Western Europe, Including including a good part of the you know, few hundred years of the Roman Empire, if you look at the role of women in society, it actually regressed for two thousand years. How could you know we we have this idea, a false idea that progression is linear, just because maybe material comforts have gotten better in each stage of history. Well, maybe not after the Roman Empire, but if we look back at the societies that are pre-Christian. They were matriarchal societies in which women were the healers. They knew everything about every herb um, certain women did and they passed it down. And so then we go through this 2,000 years of regression under the power of the European church and under the, under the uh, first the power of the necessity of feudal relationships. And then, in, then under capitalism, early industrial capitalism and until very, very recently. Uh, you could say almost until today, um, is it's dominated by a male view of how society works. Uh, very, very far from a, a, you know, a unified human view of how society should work. And if we look today, if we look back at the history of economic thought of capitalism, just of the thought about capitalism, most of the female economists not only are they mostly living with a, a class of suppressed people, other men suppressed by other men, but they are themselves then suppressed or oppressed. So they're the oppressed of the oppressed, and I think they had a particularly sharp antenna related to oppression 
and related to economic uh, inequality and social justice. And so we fast forward today to answer your question about um, about the inclusion of reproductive activities in GDP or yeah, I guess we can start with that. It is interesting that today, even though so, so much work still, the critical work of society of keeping children, literally keeping them alive and socializing them, is done globally by women. And this type of work, even though there are interests in the United Nations, in the World Bank, and in other international organizations and governments, including the Canadian government, that want to change this for the better. There is still so much, you could say, unrecognized work and unpaid work. Do you think neoclassical economics lends itself to critical thinking? I mean, I, I think um, no, not <laughs> generally. Or just the general answer, no. And then it depends on who's teaching it. Like my approach to teaching economics, my, my limited, albeit limited experience, is to put some of this out there and say, well, look, I'll let you judge for yourself what you think of this paradigm or this um, you know, conception of reality. And then I'll, I'll provide another, I'll provide an alternative. And I'll say, you know, does a, does a world that's represented by a single maximizing agent who's you know, monomaniacally focused on uh, maximizing pleasure from consumption and the only limit is income, um, so there's there's big problems with this model. So when I when I present neoclassical thinking, and when I've seen others present it this way too, they tear it like they don't. It's not that they tear it apart. They expose the limitations of it right away. So the first thing is that one person can represent everybody. It's almost like a communist utopia at the heart of a neoclassical economic model, which is supposed to explain capitalism, which you're not allowed to talk about. You're not allowed to mention that word. So. When you look at this whole construct of neoclassical, it does limit your thinking because you're presented with a vision of the world that actually has no vision at all. It's, 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 a, it's a, an economic agent. He's stripped of all personality. He's neither male nor female. He's not even human or she. It's an economic agent that maximizes according to a budget constraint. And what's also terrifying about this model is not the complete lack of vision and it, it's right. It's it's almost a terrifying conception of the world. It's a complete dystopia. But the other thing is, is that the entire model doesn't talk about the limits to growth generally uh, that are imposed on society by political forces and by you know by by environmental forces. So the uh, there's an idea underlying this model that there's infinite growth on a finite world. And so I think all of these constructs limit the capacity for critical thinking. I was told once in a course in the United States that if I couldn't accept the basic assumptions of the neoclassical paradigm, this is, this is a true story, that I needed to see a psychiatrist. And I actually did see one because <laughs> I thought it was me. I thought, okay, well, maybe I'm having a psychological problem. Um, and so the doctor, upon having five <sighs> sessions, said, it's not you. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> Do you think the dominance of neoclassical economics is a product of a lack of critical thinking? I mean, once, once a strain of thought becomes dominant, as neoclassical thinking did, once it permeates the main you know, departments of education and the main organs of economic policy, once, once a, a particular strain of thought dominates and then takes root, it starts to protect itself. 
It's not that there's a conspiracy. It's that you tend, what I've noticed in my life, uh, working in different you know, uh, organizations, both in the government and private sector, is that much, much less so in university. Nobody tells me what to do here, really. But is this, that it's not that anybody tells you how to think in big organizations. It's that there is a tendency towards a way of thinking. So people tend to get promoted, and I don't mean this in any in any pernicious or critical way, but you tend to promote people who have the same world vision as you do. And if the dominance, if the neoclassical paradigm is unconsciously or consciously dominant in, in people's minds, they'll tend to favor people who have a similar vision of the world, or in this case, lack of vision, which is that the world's made up of a, a bunch of uh, basically individual atoms who are stripped of any kind of personality or characteristics other than maximizing behavior. And the only way that the society shifts out of this fictitious equilibrium is that shocks are introduced in the form of a productivity shock or a depression abroad. And then there's these automatic forces that bring it back into equilibrium. It's, it, it's, it, it explains a, a fictitious dystopia, which I hope we never really slip into. To you, as an economic historian, why is it important to historically contextualize economic disciplines? I, I think that's um, I think that's a, a central question. I think there's I'll break my answer into two parts. One of the reasons is okay, where economics is the study of capitalism. Economics does not seek to explain feudalism. It does not seek to explain tribalism. Uh, it does not seek to explain tributary empire systems that were based on tribute and conquest. It seeks to explain a system whose organizing principle is capital accumulation. The organizing principle is not the uh, lifting up the prosperity of the population. The prosperity of the population will be lifted according to the, the very core neoclassical paradigm by the accumulation of capital. And so once we recognize that that's the organizing principle, we need to put the discipline in its historical context because how did we, how did we get to that system? What happened? Um, how did we move anyway from a system of dynastic struggle of kings and queens and heirs and conquest, uh, right? The feudal system with its rich, colorful history and you know, like all kinds of uh, you know, homicide, right? And siblings, fathers, sons, right? It was just this dynastic rivalry. How did we move from that system to capitalism? To understand capitalism, Marx said that the key to understanding capitalism is to look into its own history and to look into its key institutions. And so what does that mean? And so I, I do believe that. I don't, I don't, I'm not a, I'm not a bigot here of quoting Marx as a prophet. I, I'm not even a, I'm not even a Marxist, but I recognize you know, genius where I see it, and a lot of what he said is still relevant. So why, why do we have to look into the history of this? Well, to understand it, we have to look where it comes from. And so a bunch of things happen in feudal Europe. Belief in a system of two powers, the church and the aristocracy, starts to decline. Mysticism starts to decline. European Jewry and Vikings start to, the Vikings cash in their swords for trading ships and become traders once they discover Byzantine and its riches. And the, 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 the fleeing of European Jewry from the steppes of Central Asia, because they're not allowed to go into any other profession, they go into new professions. And all this is happening as economic society in Europe is changing. 
And so these two groups breathe economic life into Europe. Europe was this, was pickled really for centuries. Um, you know, markets were very small. Each feudal principality was more or less self-sufficient. If they ran out of something, too bad. Or they, you know, a very high price was extracted. So Sephardic Jews, Ashkenazi Jews, and Vikings from the north, and other traders, other, other people who, whose only profession, either they wanted to be merchants, Vikings, or they were forced to be because they were, they were kept out of every other occupation in society. These groups helped to unify Europe. They unify Europe, they breathe economic life into Europe, and fortunes start to be accumulated that outweigh the fortunes of the kings and queens. Over centuries this happens. And it's this monopoly on the means of violence that the kings and queens have, and a monopoly on spiritualism that the European church claims to have, starts to be challenged by this, this new power that comes into being. And uh, this, this new power, uh, eventually it, it turns from those two ethnic groups that I talked about. It becomes generalized across the population bourgeois class is born and they're the ones that have the revolutions that displace the the feudal powers of Europe displace the church all you know this is the renaissance uh, the decline of the church and the rise of, of trade and all this and so we have to understand where capitalism comes from it's got a very rich history capitalism was a revolution it didn't come to power with a coup d'etat it comes to power 200 300 year long revolution and it revolutionizes society it revolutionizes how we live and think. And now we've got to the point today where the problem with economics is that the discipline still tries to study certain aspects of capitalism, but it's not looking at the whole trajectory and where it's going through space and time and the fact that it's now become probably the chief threat, modern industrial civilization, call it what you want. Uh, as John Galbraith says, you can call it Fred, or you can call it global capitalism. Whatever your belief about it is, it's crashed into the global economic uh, ecological frontier. And so the discipline now has to go beyond explaining changes in prices and quantities and you know, the seasonally adjusted unemployment rate. And it has to now explain the limits to growth and how we create a new prosperous society that doesn't kill its underlying life systems. Um, what trends in economic thinking emerged after the Great Recession in 2008? I think um, the trends that emerged were already there. But what, what the global financial crisis does, one of the things it does is it exposes salient weaknesses in modern capitalist societies. So what does the global financial crisis reveal? You know, there's been a lot of thought about what started it and who started it and whose fault it was. But what, let's look at something that happened. Starting in the 70s, there's a trickle of offshoring and outsourcing of U.S. manufacturing to third jurisdictions, let's call it that. And then this increases under Ronald Reagan's two presidencies. But the United States is still a very prosperous place for white middle class people and, of course, higher income. And then under Bush 1 and the Clintons and the Clinton clan, this, this offshoring continues and it, it really accelerates. 
And then in the early 2000s, it just takes off as China joins the WTO. And so all of these so-called units of capital, American corporations offshoring and outsourcing, and I'm not, I'm not saying those things are bad in and of themselves, but on a scale writ large, the migration of U.S. manufacturing out of the United States hits middle-class income slowly, but, you know, but with brute force when it accumulates over 30 years. And so what replaces this income? Human beings do not behave as the neoclassical model says they do because comp society is complex. With a declining income, middle class, so-called, because I don't like this term, blue-collar manufacturing workers in the United States, in the face of a widespread loss of their traditional income, what do they do? They don't cut back their consumption um, because something else happens during this time. What Alan Greenspan called, and he meant it in a good way, the democratization of finance so that people were able to get access to debt increasingly late 70s, early 80s, mid, late 80s, right through the 90s, right through a lot of Alan Greenspan's term, there's a liberalization of finance. In the UK, Thatcher called it the Big Bang reforms. In the United States, I think just, you know, it was, it was financial liberalization. So people didn't feel, society didn't feel, US politics at the beginning didn't feel the loss of income associated with the migration offshore of manufacturing because people increasingly replaced income with debt. The financial crisis starting in 2007 was society, American society, had just reached either a local or a, an upper limit, you could say, on how much debt could be uh, taken in society and used to pay for current consumption. So one of the things that comes out of the crisis is that, it's, it's, and it was obvious before, one of the things that comes out is just how much income inequality had increased over those 30 years, but it was masked by debt. Another thing that comes out of the crisis is just how unsustainable a debt-financed economic model is. A third thing that comes out of the crisis is that an economy may look strong based on GDP growth and unemployment data and low inflation, but those are just very general macroeconomic variables. What you're looking, what we need to look at, is what's going on underneath that income distribution, um, whether institutions are being eroded, and all these other factors. And so, what a third thing that comes out of the, the crisis is interconnectedness and complexity. And those are now fields of, of of economics. Do you have any last thoughts, or any? Is there anything that you want uh, the listeners to know? Um, yeah. Okay. Sure. I'll just uh, I'll, I'll try to be brief. I will be brief. Economics can seem, as one economist called it, the dismal science. Uh, it can seem heavy, irrelevant, just something you avoid uh, because it's uh, too mathematical, too technical, best left to eggheads. I would say this, economics, when it's taught properly and uh, when you learn it with an open mind and if you keep reading and you read a diverse source of material, you, you read especially read what people tell you not to read. Uh, those are the things to read, <laughs> right? You read, you read Schraffa and, 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 and Gramsci and, uh, and everything, Keynes, and Keynes is wonderful. You know, study the past, learn economics. If you, it's a very powerful tool, it's not a good word. It's, if, if it's taught properly and you have an open mind, 
you can develop a prism through which to look at society which can help you in your personal life and if you have a job in policy like it can help you uh, create a better policy environment in some government institution or you can go on to teach it and uh, teach it in a way that is open to new ideas and that continually reflects our changing society um, what we don't want to do is stick with an old paradigm when it's so out of date now that it's like applying Newtonian physics to studying the universe today. And what does that mean? It is, it is an anachronism. But it doesn't have to be. And there are bright spots all around the world. And I mentioned the OECD. And there's some right here at McGill happening, particularly with all the, you know, the development of Montreal as a hub for machine learning. Sorry. And... Um, and AI. So there's, there's, it's those two, that, that technological innovation has opened up lots of new possibilities in economics. Okay. All right. Um, Julian, thank you very much for talking with us on the show today. That was, that was very, that was excellent. Okay, Leora, uh, thank you very much for, for having me. Yeah. Maybe we can try to do a series. by Leora Schertzer, Ben Bollert, and Alexandra Demos with support from CKUT 90.3 FM on occupied Ganekahaga territory. Theme music is by Ross Graham and Will Hanna with sound effects by Leora Schertzer. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Expanding Economics. If you have any comments, feedback, or topic requests for this economically precarious time, you can get in touch via email at expandingecon.mtl at rethinkeconomics.org. If you want to read more about our greater mission and are curious about heterodox economics, you can check out the website of our affiliated network, rethinkeconomics.org. This summer, we'll be releasing episodes more frequently. Until next time.